It's the third book of 39 books in the Old Testament. And um, maybe more importantly, it's the centerpiece of the anthology, of the five-book anthology that starts the Bible off, that's known as the Torah or the Pentateuch. Um, The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, form the foundation for the rest of the Old Testament. But what's important to note is that the way things are structured in Hebrew literature is incredibly important. Um, We don't think about how things are ordered or structured in terms of which comes first, second, third in in our literature today as much, but they structured things intentionally. And the fact that Leviticus is placed in the center of the law, which is the foundation of this community's identity, is really important. So Leviticus was very important to the Hebrew people who wrote it and adhered to it. It was very important to Jesus who quoted it, quoted it and alluded to it many times. And so I think it should be very important to us as well. Properly understood, I think Leviticus can be a real kind of game changer for you in terms of the way you relate to God and the way you relate to the Bible. Now, I know that's not what you've heard. I know most Christians hide Leviticus away like it's a drunken uncle, like it's you don't want any one of your friends to know that it's there. And the only reason you include Leviticus in the Bible is because you've been told to. And, and, and you know, if you've tried to read through the whole Bible, you usually make it through Genesis, you make it through Exodus, and then you get to Leviticus and you're like, I'm done, I just can't. And critics of Christianity, they always attack Leviticus first. If you really pay attention to people that are vehemently opposed to the Christian worldview, they will go after the low-hanging fruit first, which is often found, in their, in their view, in Leviticus. Now, I want to talk a little bit about whether or not Leviticus is actually objectively strange or if that's just the way that we see it. I, I think maybe it's just uh, superficially an easy target. Because from the modern perspective, Leviticus just reads weird. If you ever tried to get through it, it's just hard to understand why anybody would ever um, think that all of these laws were a good idea. They, they don't often seem to be based in reason. Um, from our enlightened, post-enlightenment perspective in 2018, you know, United States of America. And even the most faithful people who've studied the Bible their whole lives can be really stumped by Leviticus. I mean, I, I've studied the Bible for a long time, sometimes as, as an atheist or a, a skeptic, and sometimes as a Christian and a pastor, and I still come across verses in Leviticus, and I'm like, I, I just don't know what to do with it. I have no idea why this is in here. Like this passage that I'll share with you from uh, chapter 12, verses 2 and 5, talks about cleanliness and uncleanliness as far as childbirth goes. And a woman who gives birth to a son is unclean for seven days. A woman who gives birth to a daughter is unclean for 14 days. I have no idea why that law was ever handed down. I don't think I will ever understand it until, you know, I get to heaven and I'm able to ask Moses what he was thinking. In my experience, boys are way messier than girls. And so it would seem to be the opposite. That's true. But uh, here, that's not, the, that's not the case. I don't know why. And if I'm going to be a faithful Bible reader, then in some instances, I just have to trust that in its place and time, there was a reason. There was a good reason to have uh, a law like that, uh, a, a rule 
like that that ordered the people's lives that I can't understand today. Scholars have actually taken stabs at this. I might actually tackle this in one of the devotionals that's coming up as part of the 30-day um, Leviticus challenge. There's another uh, example of um, Leviticus verses that it doesn't really confuse me. This, this kind of stuff just grosses me out, and it feels like Leviticus should have a PG-13 rating or something. It says, if someone has an open sore on their head or in their beard, the priest shall examine the disease. If it is deeper than the skin and the hair in it is yellow and thin, the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is an itch, an infectious disease. Now, I don't know what's going on in this passage. I'm just really glad that the job description for priests and pastors has changed <laughs> over the years. I don't want to see your oozy, itchy sores <laughs> with that yellow hair growing out of it. I'm not going to help you, <laughs> you know? If anything, I'll Instagram it, and that's all. That's all you're going to get. And I think that's how a lot of Leviticus feels to many people today, just kind of weird and gross. It's hard to make sense of it, and it uh, doesn't feel very helpful. The question I want you to honestly wrestle with today is to, to wonder whether Leviticus is objectively gross and weird, whether it is in a vacuum actually objectively gross and weird, or whether we in our 21st century post-enlightenment Western mindset are just ignorant, entitled little snowflakes. Like one of those two things is true about Leviticus, or at least one is more true than the other. And we have a decision to make there. When you read something as old as Leviticus, which the events in Leviticus took place 3,000 to 3,500 years ago, that's a long time ago, it's really important to be aware of something called chronological snobbery which uh, C.S. Lewis defined as the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. Y'all following that? Basically, it is the mentality that says people used to be really stupid and now we're really smart. People used to be dumb and do stupid things but now we figured it out. And you can be a chronological snob about anything. You can be a chronological snob about worldviews of the past. You can be a chronological snob about hairstyles, like in the 80s with the satellite bangs. You know, you can be a, a chronological snob about what people used to wear, what people used to listen to, how people used to live. And, and we often do that. We criticize uh, old shows, old movies, old fashion, old big cell phones. And, and we're like, what were they thinking? They were so stupid. We've got it figured out now. And it's completely lost on us when we're deep in our chronological snobbery that someday, 50 years from now, people are going to look back on us and be like, wait, wait, wait. Those people were stupid. Like, what were they thinking? Like back when boys had short hair and girls had long hair, like what were they thinking? It's so stupid. We've got it figured out now. And, and why do they have cell phones in their hands? Why didn't they get the brain chip like the rest of us? Like it's so stupid. Like, like they're going to judge us the same way we've judged other cultures. And when we look back on something as old as Leviticus, we get even harsher. We're even more elitist about it. I don't have scientific data to back this up. It's just a hunch based on anecdotal evidence that I've heard as a pastor. But I think somewhere around 98, 99% of the people who just offhandedly totally dismiss Leviticus as, as, as unhelpful and judgmental and wrong are somewhere around 98 to 99% clueless about what Leviticus really says and who wrote it. 
and why they wrote it and for whom they wrote it and when they wrote it, under what circumstances. Look, we know, if you've ever been to a school of any kind, you know that context matters. Whatever you're reading, you learn this in high school. If you went to private school, you learned it in middle school. That context <laughs> matters, right? And so it's especially important to pay attention to context whenever you're reading something as, as old as, as Leviticus where you should have in your mind, not a modern day context, you should have in your mind as you're studying Leviticus a context that's over 3,000 years old when the world was very different in a place called Canaan. It was a region of land that we kind of call the Holy Land today, sort of, in an in a ambiguous kind of a way. Um, nomads, groups, bands of tribes, and uh, disparate groups of people wandered the land. They hadn't figured out how to, you know, be civilized and, and build cities and, and farm one plot of land. They just wandered around, and some of these bands and, and tribes were hunter-gatherers. Other bands and tribes were herders, right? And so they all lived different lives, but they all just kind of subsisted, and, and they wandered because they had to survive. And once in a while, these tribes would kind of run into each other, but they weren't related to each other in any way. Every tribe was kind of each to its own, and they were kind of like big extended families, and whenever it's time to get married, you kind of married, you know, your second cousin or something like that. That's how these little tribes worked in those times. You could judge it if you want, but you just really don't understand what life must have been like to those people wandering the countryside 3,500 years ago, looking for water, looking for grasslands, sometimes competing for those resources. We know this from archaeological evidence. 3,500 years ago in that region, there was a major extended famine wherein the nomadic tribes I'm telling you about suffered the most because they were subsisting day to day. And so they were the ones who saw more disease, more poverty, more death from hunger and thirst. It's estimated by archaeologists that, that the, the Bedouin tribes I'm describing had infant mortality rates of over 50% during that time. And they were literally hanging on by a thread, dying on the vine. And they were looking for a place where there was any food or any water. And uh, the rumor was um, throughout the region that there was still food. There were reserves in Egypt. And so all of these different disparate bands of people sort of migrated slowly, making their way toward Egypt. And they all arrived separately. But here's what happened. When all these different disparate bands of people, these nomadic tribes, found their way to Egypt for the food and for the water, the Egyptians, the sort of dominant empire, the society, looked at all of them as though they were all the same people, as though they all came from the same place, because they all kind of dressed the same and lived the same, and they kind of looked the same to us. And so the these Egyptians, they, they, just, they just called all these different bands of people hapiru. Hapiru is a word that just meant foreigners in Egyptian. And the Egyptians had no clue that all these people had come from kind of different places and had different stories. And some were hunter-gatherers and some were, you know, fishermen and some were, uh, were, were you know, the herders. And they just said they're all hapiru. Which is kind of like your grandma, when she didn't know the difference between a Mexican and a Brazilian. You know, like they're all just Mexicans. Like that's what was happening in Egypt at the time. And the Egyptian records, and they kept pretty good records, mention Hapiru several times during that span of time. And the, the earliest mentions of the Hapiru um, were as 
kind of positive, helpful migrant workers. They came and helped the economy. They were the immigrants that came and did the work that none of us wanted to do. And, 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 and so that's how they were mentioned in the, in the beginning. But that's not how things developed. They didn't say that nice for that long. As the Hapiru kind of settled into their new life, um, they kind of got used to this way of living. They were like, why should we go back out and be nomadic wanderers again if we can have stable lives here? Our kids do well here. And so they did in Egypt what immigrants anywhere do. They adapted. And they got jobs. And they learned the language. And they learned to drive on the right side of the road. And they opened restaurants and laundromats. And their kids dominated high school soccer games. And... (laughs) And at first, everything was okay. But then the economy hit a snag, and the Hapiru were slowly viewed as more of a threat. And the later references in the Egyptian records of the Hapiru were not as migrant workers and immigrants who boosted the economy. The later references of the Hapiru were as slaves and servants, infidels. All right? So we know uh, from the biblical record even that the Hapiru people were forced into slavery, that they did hard time for many years. And it was during that time, a little over 3,000 years ago, that God called Moses to lead the Hapiru out of Egypt. You're probably getting it by now, but that Egyptian word Hapiru is where we get the word Hebrew, which wasn't a word before this. (laughs) These were not an ethnic group grouping of people. This, this was a class. This were Bedouin, unrelated Bedouin, nomadic tribes that all gravitated to Egypt where the food and water were, and the Egyptians went Habiru, and then you had Hebrews. And when God called the Habiru out of Egypt, that was the first time they were one group. They were one community. And that is the context in which Leviticus is written. Because here's the thing, living free is harder than it sounds. Living free sounds good, but when we were slaves, they fed us. And here we are in the wilderness, it's been generations since we lived out here. We don't know how to do what our forefathers did. We can't subsist out here. Our kids are going to starve out here. Shouldn't we just go back to Egypt and be slaves again and live? And it's in that context of fear and uncertainty that God laid down the law with the Habiru people or the Hebrew people. And that's what Leviticus is. It sounds weird and harsh to us, but to those people in those times, that place, Leviticus was a way forward. Leviticus was a ray of hope. Leviticus was a new foundation on which to build this new free life together. Let me give you an example of what I mean from Leviticus. This is from chapter 18. If you, wanna, if you have a Bible, um, you're, a, you're an A student here at the story. You're probably in the minority. Get your Bible out, and I'd love for you to read it in your Bible if you want to, or it's in your study guide if you don't have your Bible with you or a Bible app on your phone. It's in your study guide on the middle of page one. If you don't have a Bible at all, just let us give you one. Just take one. Nobody's going to look at you funny. Take one from the lobby outside, and you don't have to pay, and don't have to bring it back. It's yours. Um, By definition, stealing a Bible is forgiven already. That's how it works. (laughs) Leviticus 18, 1 through 5. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. 
You shall not do as they did in the land of Egypt where you lived. You shall not do as they'll do in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. You shall not follow their statutes. My ordinances you shall observe. My statutes you shall keep following them. I'm the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and my ordinances. Now I'm gonna stop right there and just say, when we hear God speaking this way, our enlightened minds automatically go to God as this brutal divine dictator who just wants to be followed, who just wants to be obeyed, right? arbitrarily. But listen, I'm the Lord your God, keep my statutes and my ordinances. By doing so, one shall live. By doing so, one shall live. I am the Lord. That is such an important part of this book. In spite of what you've heard, Leviticus is a love story about a God who wants his people to live. And I would say, not just to live, but to live well, to live long, to thrive, not just to survive. And that's the first thing I want you to hear about this, this book called Leviticus and, and the God who handed it down to us. His priorities are life, health, holiness, happiness, right? We're gonna get to holiness and happiness later. For now, I'm gonna talk about wellness, physical well-being and health, the health of the people of God. Now, if you've ever read Leviticus through, congratulations, you're definitely in the minority there. If you've ever gotten all the way through it, you probably noticed this recurring theme of clean and unclean. These things are clean. These things are unclean. These things are clean. These things are unclean. And it, it kind of weirds you out again because it sounds super religious, like there's sacred stuff and profane stuff, right? And it sounds arbitrary again. But if you thumb through Leviticus 11 through 15, you'll see all kinds of references to clean and unclean things. There's some animals that are clean, some animals that are unclean, some foods that are clean, some foods that are unclean. There's some, uh, you know, skin diseases that are okay and some skin diseases that are bleh, you know, like there's some, there's some mold in your house that's, that's livable. There's some mold in your house, you need to burn the house down, right? Leviticus outlines all of this. And if you thought Leviticus was not relevant to your life, Houston, there's mold in our house, right? So that, there's two chapters about house mold in Leviticus, like this is for us. And so um, host Harvey, right? So, uh, so if, you've ever, if you've ever read the book, you probably kind of pick up on this. And, and this kind of clean and unclean disparity kind of rubs us the wrong way a little bit until you realize we do the exact same things. Do we not? Is there not stuff that you don't want to mix together? Like, is there some things that you'll do in one part of your house that you'd feel really weird about doing in another part of the same house? Like, if you met a girl and you fell in love with her and then she told you that she has dinner every night in the bathroom, like, would that be a red flag to you? I feel like it would be a red flag. You know what I'm saying? Because you're not supposed to have dinner on the toilet. You have dinner at the table. And you do other stuff on the toilet. You don't wash dishes with the toilet brush. Like, like it's a brush, but it's not for that. Like, you know, you keep those things separate. That's what you do. There's just some things that mix and some things that don't. You don't take a shower and get cleaned up and then put yesterday's underwear on. You know, unless... You're in college or something like, you get a pass, but if you're not in college, it's just gross. You don't do that. What's the point of getting clean to put that dirty underwear back on? No. You know, like, uh, there's things we know we should do to stay clean. We wash our hands every time we use the bathroom, right? Right? Okay. I heard, I heard a lot of female voices before the men. So men, we wash our hands, right? Okay, good. Okay. Whew. Thank goodness. We're about to have communion up in this place, so... All right. 
Some things are clean, some things are unclean. And you shouldn't mix the two. And it's not just because it's gross. The reason you think it's gross is because many generations of living and dying have taught us that things that are gross will kill you. That's why it's gross. <laughs> That's the only reason it's gross. It's because people that mess around that way die before the rest of us. So we shouldn't do those things. That's how those things got gross to begin with. That's what Leviticus is saying a lot of the time. And we still have that Leviticus instinct in us. In a few weeks, as Pastor Gio mentioned earlier, I'll be traveling to the Dominican Republic with our team uh, to partner with our Go Ministries partners there and plant churches and, and build hospitals and do uh, uh, camps for kids and, and lots of good Jesus stuff going on on that island. And if you've ever been to a trip uh, with the story to the DR, what, you'll probably, what you probably noticed, or if you ever do go, what you will notice is this rigid system of hand washing that exists in the Dominican Republic. People that have been there are nodding their heads because you know this is like stands out. It's just like, yeah, of course we should all wash our hands before dinner, but that's, it's a whole other level there. There's like, before you, can, before you can eat, you have to all line up, and there's three stations that you have to pass through, right? So the first thing is you have to lather up with antibacterial soap, and you better make sure you can see the bubbles, right? All the way up your arm, and you lather up, and then you dip your hands into filtered water, purified water. You dip your hands into there. Then there's a third station. I don't know what it is, but it burns. Like, you put your hands in it, and it, I think it's just straight up bleach. Like, they just bleach you and it burns bleach water they just it just burns and but you're clean and then you you bring your hands up and you're like a surgeon going to the ER you're like I can't touch anything and then you go and you eat what's funny is to watch people who say oh Leviticus is stupid say I'm clean I'm you're unclean I'm clean. don't touch me you know to people that are still coming in like there's clean and unclean communities taking shape in the same room I'm not going to give you a high five I'm clean you're unclean right I'll have to go back and do it all over again if I high five your unclean self you know like it's it's clear that it is that way. The reason that it is that way, as we learned from the Go Ministries people, is that years ago when groups from America started coming down, like a third of the group would basically fall dead at every trip. Like, not dead, dead, but like almost, right? So they, they would always get super sick because there's all kinds of bacteria down there that we're just not ready for. Like our bodies are not accustomed to. And so a third of every group would just get super sick until they started instituting this hand-washing ritual. And the more stations they added to this, who knows? How many stations are going to be there when I go this year? But like, that was three years ago when they had three stations. There might be more, you know. But like, every time you wash your hands, you increase the likelihood of health. And now, like, nobody ever gets sick on these trips, you know, because, because of this commitment to physical health, common sense practices, like, uh, like what is clean, not mixing with what is unclean. That's really what Leviticus is about in large part. That's why God tells people to be careful with unclean things. That's why God says there's some skin diseases you should take very seriously because they can spread and take out a whole household or a whole village or all of us. We've got to be very careful with some of the, the sexual mores. Like some of the sexual laws in Leviticus I know are some of the most controversial. Um, and they can be pretty off-putting to people um, who are of a more enlightened, open-minded sort of worldview today. But listen, um, any sexual behavior in those days, as those people were fighting for survival, any sexual expression that um, made people prone to any kind of illness or infection or, or, or wasn't 
uh, didn't promote fertility or didn't promote like social order, like don't sleep with your neighbor's wife, it's a bad idea for many reasons, but you know, not least of which is you're gonna start a fight. Like he's gonna come and kick your butt. Like you're not, it's not good for the community, right? So we're, we're here to survive and thrive together. And that's the reason for a lot of those sexual laws. And there's the food laws that, uh, you know, I think are also there for very good reasons. Almost all, not entirely, there are exceptions, but almost all the food uh, that is uh, prohibited in Leviticus is based on the fact that the stuff that's prohibited is, is bottom, bottom feeders. So like literally Leviticus says you can have any bird you want, eat any bird you want, but leave the buzzards alone because I've seen what they eat. And uh, <laughs> let's not, let's not do that, right? Um, and then there's like, uh, and then there's like pigs, right? Which I am not saying don't eat pork. I'm, I'm cool with pork. I think there's ways we can prepare pork today that wasn't the case back then. But I, that's not to say that pigs are not disgusting creatures because they are. They're just disgusting creatures. Some of you were like, I saw a babe pig in the city. No, like real pigs, right? Like real adult pigs. <laughs> Like the mob used to feed the bodies of guys they offed to the pigs because the pigs would eat everything, bones and all, and then the mob would be totally fine. There's no body, no crime, right? And a pig will eat his best friend if he dies. You just leave his carcass in there, and a pig will just be like, sorry, Bill. You know, like, <laughs> that's what pigs do. Like, that's part of the reason why, why they're like, hey, we... We should not eat that. And it's not that, it's not arbitrarily religious, you know? It's like, I think it's more scientific than we even admit sometimes. You know, there's some people that say Leviticus was the first major thorough medical journal ever written, which is awesome. I love that because all these things are so health driven. There was nothing like it the world had ever seen before. And I think part of it is just like scientific observation over many generations in the wilderness. Moses was like, okay. I'm assuming God wants us to live and to thrive. And I watched Bubba eat bacon every day of his life, and he died at 13, right? So, like, but, but Sally eats a lot of salad, and she is the oldest woman in the village, and she is 33 and ancient, and we should try to be more like Sally, you know? And I think, I think a lot of Leviticus was exactly that. God wants us to live. God wants us to thrive, so eat this, not that. The same goes for like shellfish, right? But I know it's a terrible thing to say in Houston, Texas. This was easier to say in Kansas City when I lived in the Midwest when nobody wanted shellfish because it takes a while to get it up there. You guys want your shrimp. Have you ever looked into the diet of a shrimp? Don't, all right? Just don't because you don't want to eat it anymore. But basically shrimp, shellfish, they're like, they're like the pigs of the sea. Like that's basically how that works. And so the prohibitions in Leviticus are more about health and holiness than just rigid um, religion. So the reason why all of these laws mattered, the reason why God wanted these people, especially these people, to thrive and to live was because he had big plans for them. Big plans that began back in Genesis 12 when God called Abram, who became Abraham, and said, I'm going to make out of you and Sarah, I'm going to make a great nation that is going to bless the whole world. And Abram and Sarah, they couldn't believe it. They just laughed incredulously. But part of God's plan through Abram and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, was to 
bring about this nation that began in the Hebrew slaves in Egypt. And part of God's plan involved freeing those slaves into the wilderness where they learned to live a different way and they learned to be healthy and holy and free. And part of God's plan involved that community over many, many years eventually giving birth to Jesus. You understand, without Abraham and that call, we don't have, we don't have Moses. Without Moses and the Habiru people, we don't have Leviticus. Without Leviticus, we don't have Jesus. Like, without Jesus, we don't have us here today. There is a plan at work here. There is a purpose for which God creates his people. And in order to see that purpose in its fullness, it's best if we're healthy It's best if we're strong. It's best if we're physically able and capable to to live up to the calling that God has us, has before us. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It just seems to me that we Christians have missed this completely. Right? We have missed it because we never talk about salvation having anything to do with your body. What we talk about having to do with your heart or your soul. We say heaven is like this disembodied paradise where you're going to go be a spirit person in heaven. That is not biblical. Jesus didn't say, I came so that all the creation will be destroyed and we'll go be spirit animals in the sky. Jesus said, I have come to restore what God has made. I have come to restore creation. And in the New Testament, it says that God's plan isn't to trash your body and save your soul. God's plan is to redeem and restore all of you, body and soul. When Jesus walked around, he didn't just instinctively heal souls. He didn't just say, you're saved and you're saved and you're saved. See you in heaven. See your soul in heaven one day. He healed bodies too. He was compelled to heal bodies because for God, matter matters. Your body is important. And I've never heard a single preacher stand on a stage like this in front of people like you and say, you know, You need to get on the treadmill and get right with God. (laughs) I've heard heard guys like me say, you need to get on your knees and get right with God. We need to get your head right or your heart right. What about your body? It's very important at this point that I make a distinction here. Because uh, in Houston, especially in a place like Houston, I think it can be very easy to hear me saying that we should get prettier and more handsome that you should be that guy at the gym that intimidates all the other guys (laughs) until we see your legs. (laughs) Mix in a leg day, gym guy. (laughs) It's not about how you look. You can be thin and superficially beautiful and completely messed up. A lot of people are actually. It's not about how you look. It's about who you are physically. It's about how you feel, but it's about really how you honor what God has entrusted you with. And that's gonna look different for all of us. It should. God is a lover of diversity and we should look different. There's different ways to be healthy and beautiful. All right? But in 1 Corinthians, Paul pretty much lays it out for us. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God. 
You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And that is what the 30-day Leviticus challenge is all about. When we read Leviticus, we know God had a plan for those people, a plan that would change the course of human history. But they had to be healthy and strong and clean to discover that plan in its fullness. And my question for you is this. I hope it's a question you're already asking yourself. Who are we to say that that plan ended with Leviticus? Does that plan not continue in us today? Does God not still have great plans for you? Great plans for you to know and live up to. Great plans for you to influence the people around you so that they will know God the way you know God. If so, then what would Leviticus look like for you today? Not 3,000 years ago, but in 2018, Houston, what would Leviticus look like for you today? What should your rules be? That's what we were going for when we, when we made those checklists. Maybe your rules aren't even on those checklists. Maybe your rules, you know, I cannot, thou shalt not eat six tacos in one sitting anymore. You know, thou shalt not go on a bender and say, I just drink once a month, but when I drink, I drink. You know, like, thou shalt, thou shalt not, you know, uh, uh, refrain from bathing when thou returnest from Galveston, like thou art unclean or whatever, I don't know. But like, uh, seriously, like I believe God has big plans for us as well. I believe God has plans for you as well. And so it is incumbent upon me to encourage you to be healthier, stronger and cleaner, not just spiritually, but physically, because we know that when we feel better, when we when we honor God with our bodies, we are more likely to honor him with our lives, to feel his presence, to lead others to do the same. When you're disciplined about what goes into your body, committed about making the right choices, in bed by 10.30 instead of 2.30, you know you're a different person. And body and soul are not separate entities, but all intertwined together. And that's what this challenge is all about. I believe God has plans for us. And the healthier, cleaner, stronger, holier, and happier we become, the more fully you will see God's plan for your life come to pass.